Well, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Robbie Irwin, and you're very welcome to Conversations. It's a podcast where I chat with people whose work and indeed whose profession, and in some cases, their lives, I've admired over the years. Uh, now, the podcast comes to you in conjunction with Senior Times, the magazine for people who simply don't act their age, and I hope you're one of them as well. Now, my guest today is John Horan, whose term as GA president finished at the end of February, and uh, it certainly was an interesting and evolving and a challenging three years for John, and John is with us to, now to reflect on that and perhaps even to delve into his life a little bit. Uh, John, you're very welcome to uh, the conversations here uh, with Robbie. How are you? Thanks very much, Robbie. Yeah, delighted to join you. It's been a fantastic three years for you. Um, I, I remember at the time, John, um, you were very, very emotional uh, twice uh, when you were you know, accepting uh, the nomination, first of all, and indeed when you accepted being elected as president. Uh, you were very emotional about it that day, both to the ch- challenge, if you like, and indeed to your family. Yeah, very much so. I suppose um, when I was actually elected, I didn't realise that I was actually seriously ill at the time and yeah. ended up in um, hospital for a two-week period and um, probably went through a, a, quite a trauma in terms of my actual health. Um, I had um, serious kidney problems and uh, I also had a cancer scare through it all. So um, I suppose in a way the campaign took a toll on me on a personal level health-wise and it was only probably the following September that I actually was somewhat restored to full health. Yeah, That probably led to the emotion. Uh, getting it was emotional. It's a huge honour. Like when you played fullback on a junior football team in your club and you end up being the president of the most wonderful organisation, it is humbling. And uh, yeah, I suppose at times I can be tough, but there's a soft centre in there as well that triggers a little bit of emotion now and again. Yeah. Just on that, I was going to mention that illness because I wasn't aware, to be honest about it, about the cancer scare, but I was aware of the illness. And I do know that you were in hospital, in the Matter Hospital, for two weeks around that time. Was a lot of that to do with the stress, perhaps, of the campaign and uh, knowing what was ahead and all the, all the, the, the stuff that you had to go through the canvassing, etc., to get the votes to become president. It, it, it was all triggered on a very simple thing of being at a match up in Cavan and getting a chill. And unfortunately, mm. it was somewhat neglected, um, not so much on my part, but medically, and it, it just deteriorated. And uh, I went back to the doctor at one stage. I was down two stone in weight over a period of about four weeks. So wow. uh, I ended up in hospital. Uh, kidneys created uh, a huge challenge to the staff, but in fairness to Dr. Yvonne O'Mara and to Paddy Mallon, who's been in the news in recent times, they they got me back on the right road in that sense. But then, unfortunately, I was then faced with a prostate problem. But uh, Kieran O'Malley, the Dublin team doctor, did a great job for me there. And uh, whilst I went through all my tests and it was all indicating cancer, and when I went back to meet him, anticipating a date for surgery, he actually alluded to the fact that my prostate had been infected and it wasn't cancer and that I didn't have to undergo the surgery. So that was a lift. But no, it was a challenging time after the election just to get my health back. And I know Park Duffy at one stage said to one of the staff, will John recover to be actually able to do the job? But no, I recovered and I was in full health. And I'd certainly like to thank those people in the medical team. As I said, Eva McNamara and Paddy Mallon, they were a great help to me. John, we come back maybe to, to your election and the, 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 the canvassing, et cetera, that you had to do twice um, to become president. Um, but but take us back to an early uh, John Horan life, born in Dublin and um, uh, family from, from, you know, around the country as well. Yeah, mum came from Wexford and dad came from uh, Abbey Leaks. And I suppose uh, it was through my dad I got the love of the GA. There wasn't very much GA background in my mum's family, but I suppose living so close to Crow Park, my dad on a regular basis would bring, him and another neighbour would bring a lot of us young lads from the road down and we'd queue up and we'd get tossed over the turnstile and run up to the back of the canal end. And little did I think standing on the canal end watching those matches that I'd actually end up in the middle of the Hogan stand someday. Mm. But, you know, credit goes to my dad, credit goes to the people in the FINA for, you know, all that they taught me and all that I got out in Afina as a club because it had a huge influence in my growing up and my development. No. Tell us a little bit more about that because I know as we speak, John, I mean, the club has gone through a phenomenal period of success, not just in terms of um, the, the members of the Dublin senior football men's team, but also in terms of uh, the ladies' team and Dublin six in a row and the ladies' Dublin in terms of four in a row. But if Nafina themselves have a huge representation in those panels and indeed you're the president of the GAA so the club has had a remarkable four five six years 
Yeah, but I, I'd go back to those that people that founded the club, and I suppose the club was founded from a split between the what was the new Nafina and CJ Kickhams, as it was at the time. And, you know, the, the actual foundation that was laid down by the men that were involved in that, and I suppose they battled to create their own club and they faced challenges in getting a ground that we did get in Movie Road and getting the permission to actually form a team and whatever. But like some of those are still around, great men like Jimmy Gray, Frank Gray, Donald, Pat Feeney and others like, you know, who uh, left a legacy there. And and I suppose in a funny kind of way, we were a smaller club when I was coming through it. So it was more intimate. You knew those people, but those people had a huge influence on you as a person. And coming through, like, you know, uh, you left school, if you went going to college, they made sure you got a job. And that was the way Nafina worked. And everybody looked out for each other. And, uh, you know, very fortunate, like, you know, in life to have been born in an area where I got connected with such a great club. And John, how far did you go as a player? Like, I mean, you know, were, were, you, were you ever at the level where you could have been a Johnny Cooper or a Conor McHugh or, or, of course, Owen Merchant of current status? I could mention Desi Farrell and all the rest of them gone back. But were you ever at that level yourself? No, no, that, that's what I alluded to. Like, I mean, you know, I played junior football. I got involved in coaching then. And I suppose that's where my road started really up the line in the context of uh, coaching underage teams and then coaching teams in the school. I worked my way all the way up, managed every age grade, minor, under 21, managed the senior team for three years and then got involved with Dublin minor teams. I was a selector on three Dublin minor panels, one of which got to an All-Ireland final in 2001. We lost to Tyrone and then I went on in 2005 and managed the Dublin minor team with what has given me great pleasure looking on lately with Dublin. A large number of the players in that minor panel actually came through to play for Dublin, like Johnny Paddy Andrews, Darren Daly, Philly McMahon, mm. Kevin Nolan, Dermot Connolly. So, you know, a great pleasure. But I suppose there's one I do reflect on. The first team I ever stood in front of as a coach and a very novice coach and really probably the water boy and the bag man at the particular time, learning how to actually coach and deal with young lads. But that first team that I ever stood in front of was the first day that Desi Farrell actually turned up in the FINA mm-hmm. to actually be involved with a team. And I thought it's all gone full cycle to think that was my first day coaching and Desi's first day there as a player. And then my last major public act as president of GA was to present Sam McGuire to a team that mm. Desi was managing. So, like, you know, certainly a full cycle there. No, and a great pleasure to see that. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. And where where did your ambitions in terms of, uh, um, you know, what was to become, you know, the, the last three years of your life there now as in president of, of the GAA, does that go back to your school roots? You, you were involved a uh, principal uh, of St. Vincent's, involved in the coaching there, involved in perhaps Leinster colleges. Was that where you kind of got grounded in becoming a politician, if you like, because it, you have to be a politician to negotiate the, the, the fields and the threads to get to where you got to. Was it St. Vincent's? Was it colleges football? Yeah, it, it, it was colleges. And uh, I was asked to get on the Dublin Colleges Committee and I did a stint on it. And then... Um, it was funny, I went back, I took a break and I went back on the committee and uh, mm-hmm. an election happened and uh, I was asked to go forward and run against the actual um, office holder for the chairman of the Dublin schools. And I'll always remember Brother Tommy MacDonald, a well-known character in the GA school scene and whatever Dublin minor scene in Dublin. And Brother Tommy was sitting behind me and he leaned around to a few more teachers behind and he says, John Horan is a Christian Brothers man, we got to support him. And I won that election against the outgoing chairman and it started there. And I did um, I did four years chairman in Dublin schools. Then I became vice chairman of Leinster schools, chairman of Leinster schools. Then I got asked to do football development committee in Leinster by Nicky Brennan, 
Then Liam O'Neill came in and appointed me coaching in games for three years. Uh, I ran for vice chairman in Leinster at that stage and I lost by one vote to Martin Skelly. Mm. And Seamus Howland reappointed me in coaching games. And three years later, I ran and I won the election three years later by about 45 votes. So that was it. And I, I thought no more of that. Uh, it was going along. And I suppose presidency was never, ever on my horizons whatsoever. I know some people that did get the office said they did have that ambition. I never had it. But I'll always remember at my um, first um, Congress where Egon O'Farrell was elected and being in the Crow Park Hotel afterwards and Michael Delaney and some of the Leash delegation were there. And they, they called my wife over and they said, we think he could be the next president. Would you back him? And she says, yeah, if he, if he wants it, I'll uh, back him. And she came back over and she said, the lads were up in Neil Carvo and John Condor and they reckoned who was going to be the next man after Aegon. And they came up with your name. So I said, I'd back you if you wanted. So that's that, that was the first time it ever entered into my head to ever think in that direction. So, I mean, all I was doing was doing jobs that were progressing onto further jobs. But look, when I went for it then, uh, look, I'd lost by one vote for vice chairman in Leinster. Going for the presidency of the GA is a very public thing. And I didn't want to take that blow personally that I would be out there in the public domain and get it. And I always remember one person saying to me one day, John, do you think you have a chance? And all I replied was, well, I'm not running to lose. And that <laughs> stoked me up in a big way to make sure that I got over the line. I put a huge effort into it. I had great people around me. And I suppose it came out somewhat as a surprise because I was probably started out somewhat of the lesser known of all the candidates and whatever, and less time on the national stage. But like to win it on the first count was yeah. just very, very pleasing. I read somewhere as well during that during that time, John, that uh, I think somebody asked you about how worried you might be or you were in terms of getting the vote. And you've just alluded to it slightly there. But you, there was a great quote that, that I that, that I'd never heard before. And you said that you, you, when you're going to sleep at night, you shouldn't worry about it. Um, you should count sheep and not vote. Yeah. And, and that was it. Like, I mean, at the time of the build up, you know, there's always a stage in your life. I think there's a white line and you have to put yourself 200% into it to get over that white line. Mm. I would look back and say there was two occasions in my life I probably really did push for that. And mm. that was um, when I went for the deputy principalship mm. in Vincent School, I was uh, very um, determined to get it and I put a huge, huge effort into it and got myself over the line. It was a challenge. There was again five in the race internally in the school. Mm. I was the junior. I had been taught by some of the other candidates uh, seniority always was a priority in education. This was kind of shaking the cage a little, and I got myself over that. And then, having lost by one vote for the vice chairman in Leinster, I learned lessons from that. And uh, I made sure that uh, I had the homework done. I got a good team of people around me. And like, it's like the GA politics is something else. As Sean Kelly mm -hmm. said, there's politics and then there's GA politics. But like, fellas would tell you they're going to vote for you. And uh, not a, and a hope of them voting for you, like, you know. So in that sense, you had to suss that out. And yeah. like, as I said, I wrote 141 votes down on the sheet of paper in front of me while the votes are being counted. And I came in at 144. And right. that, was, that was down to the homework done by the people in the background working for me in the context of, um, you know, making sure if Robbie Irwin said he was voting for you, they checked out what Robbie Irwin was really doing and came back to me. I think three weeks before the election, we actually had a spreadsheet done out and we had um, my vote down at 136. We had two of the candidates in the 20s, one in 45, and all the other votes, we kind of gave it to the candidate we thought was the greatest challenge. And we had him at about 70. But like to get two of them in the 20s and one in 45 is exactly the way it turned out on yeah, the night yeah. of the election. And the other, it did fall back a bit. But no, it was a really, really thorough campaign. And you would wake up at night and you would literally run the votes through your head, but you never went back asleep because of it. So, no, as I said, she was a better way. No. Absolutely. And John, getting it, and we might come back in a minute, you know, obviously we'll come back to the GA and, and, and it as an, an organisation. But um, can I just ask you on a personal level, what, what, what difference did it make to your life in terms of, um, you know, what you had to do, functions that you had to go to, clubs that you had to turn the sod for, the new goalpost, anything, whatever. Over the three years, I mean, if, I, if you were to count up the miles, you must have travelled the length and breadth of Ireland at every little bun fight and dog fight. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but what, is, what, what did it do for your life in terms of your responsibilities? 
Um, well, you had to be very conscious of the fact that you were now a public figure. And um, one thing I was very conscious of that I wasn't going to engage in any way with social media because I honestly believe social media has, is, is having a somewhat negative impact on society. And, you know, I think social media will drive people away from actually engaging in public life because they're going to say, why would I do that to myself? But more particularly, why would I bring that on my family? So I can see that. That was one thing I was very conscious. Avoid social media. You have to be conscious all the time, too. And it wasn't just um, when you were on official duty, but even in your own personal life, whether you were shopping or whether you were doing other things, that uh, people would always identify you as the president of the organization that you were president of. And you, so you always had to be conscious of how you carried yourself and how you dealt with situations and whatnot. Like, you know, mm. uh, I often told a story one day at an officer training course when I was talking to county chairman that they had to realize that being county chairman in Ireland in a GAA sense was very important. You became a high profile and how you carried yourself and conducted yourself was important because you were always going to be under scrutiny. And I, I referenced that, uh, you know, I could drive along in the car before I became president and honk the horn or wave a fist or something like, you know, and uh, someone would look and consider me, oh, there, look at that baldy fellow with the glasses. But mm. I said, now as president of the GA, immediately they would say, that's the president of the GA, look at the way he's reacted. Like, so yeah. I was just getting the message across to people, you're very much in public life. And, and I found that out very much during the pandemic when you'd be out walking, the number of people that would nod to you or say hello to you that my wife would often say, do you know that person? I'd say no, but obviously they recognize the face and they're obviously yeah. interested in the GA. So you became very public. Um, it was a huge enjoyment to go around the country and visit small clubs, big clubs, whatever, and see the impact and the enthusiasm. And I often said, like, you could go to a club on a Friday night or a Saturday night for a dinner or a Sunday afternoon to open a pitch and You'd be going all week with office work and then you might have had one or two nights you'd have been out during the week. So come Friday night, your batteries would be running down. But you go and you meet these people and you see the enthusiasm and the joy that they were getting out of the GA. And all of a sudden, you know, you wouldn't be two minutes in a place and you get an energy surge to just get back up there and, and deliver and do the job and uh, embrace the greatness that you saw going on in small clubs, kill class scales in that's common who was heard of them. Rockwell Rovers down in, I was tidying my office the other day and I had a presentation from there. They're just two examples. They're down in Tipperary. Like, they're just two examples of small clubs. I suppose yeah. one of the first things I did after getting elected was a very personal one in that um, the local GA club in Kilmore and Wexford uh, invited me down to open an indoor uh, AstroTurf arena that they had actually developed for themselves. And the reason it was personal was that... Uh, the entrance gate to the clubhouse was directly across the road from the graveyard where both my mother and father were buried down in Wexford. I actually know that graveyard and I know exactly where you are at that kind of, it's not quite a crossroads, but there's a loads of three or four roads meet just at the graveyard there. They do, yeah, and a kind of a staggered basis and there's a school there and the principal there, Michal Martin, a good friend of mine. Um, and it just, when they asked me to do it, I said, what an appropriate way to actually spend your first day as Uchtaran Tofa, but to go down and do something in the area. Now, my sister and her family live down there, so uh, there is still a family connection there. But to do it in a ground, a GA ground, directly opposite where both your mum and dad are resting was very pleasant, you know. The, 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 and that's the impact that it had on your life with the responsibilities that you had as well. But John, for people who don't perhaps follow the GAA, well, we all follow the GAA, but people who are not involved in a, at a club level or emotionally, if you like, I mean, what I mean by emotionally is we all get it from our county. My county, your county is Dublin. And like everybody was, who was a Dubliner, for, for instance, was crying. Uh, uh, in 2011 when we got across the line and in the, the dramatic way it was achieved etc but the point I'm making is um, we all know the kind of emotion that that can bring to you and I'm not just sure if it's sport in general I think it is different because it's GEA because it's ours because we know it's it's in it's in us somewhere but could you explain the impact or how well the GEA gets into people's hearts in this country from a perhaps as a president, but as a huge GA member all your life. I mean, explain that. Where does that come from? I, I think it's down to identity, right? And, you know, I mean, when you think about it, um, as a nation, we were snooker fans from Ken Doherty and Alex Higgins. Then we became cycling fans. As a nation, I think we love sport. And I think everybody loves a sense of identity. 
And the GAA provides that by every club, every parish nearly has a GAA club. And that gives you the sense of identity. And that, so you wrap your club colours around you, they're important to you. Then you go on and you have your county colours and they're important to you as well. And it's that identity. And it's amazing, like, and you alluded to me travelling around Ireland, but like I've travelled the world as well in the context of visiting GAA units and whatever. And obviously last year there was a schedule of travel to numerous places from far-flung San Francisco to Christchurch in New Zealand to where the GAA is vibrant among the Irish community and it's engaging with other locals. But the first thing you always get from somebody is when you go meet them is they tell you, I'm from Ireland, my club is. And that's what they mm. come out with, my club is. It's something they never forget. When I was trawling the country looking for votes to get elected, one of the first statements I made in any club, I any county board I visited was very clearly, my club is Nafina in Dublin. And mm -hmm. that becomes, as I said in a speech to Nafina afterwards, it nearly becomes an extra part of your DNA once you become involved in it. And it's, it's, it's the identity. And I think that's the key thing. And the fact that, you know, transfers within the GAA are small in number, you know what I mean? You don't, if you're in your own county, you'll invariably spend your life with your one club, you won't move to another club, unless there's obviously, you know, geographic reasons that you've moved yeah, house to a far from reasons, part of the county. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that, yeah. But generally people stay with their club. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, taking out your uh, bank account, you nearly stay with that for life too. But uh, certainly that that it's that identity and that attachment to, and like you find people saying that, like, oh, I'm such and such is my club. And with pride, everybody says it. So I think it's that that means so much to people in the GAA identity, you know. The GAA itself, I mean, it obviously has changed from what it was even 20 years ago. Like, I mean, the development uh, of Crow Park, the opening up of Crow Park, the commercialization of the GAA. Um, is, is all that good? I mean, the, the perception of the GAA, you know, the old grab all association tag that was thrown at it for many, many years. Where where, where did that change, John? And and uh, do you see that the GAA is, is perceived now, perhaps, in a positive light by the vast majority of people? I think the last year has certainly improved our image within Irish society. Um, the Grab All Association comment is a very cheap kind mm. of throwaway slur thrown at us as an organisation. I think somewhat it's done under a misunderstanding. There's a certain amount of jealousy or envy there yeah. that we are as big and as successful as we are. The Grab All nature of that comment is ridiculous because like, there's no, no shareholders within the GAA. The shareholders of the GAA, if you really want to bore down into it are the membership of the GA and like the GA revenue stream every year about 84% of that money is recirculated through coaches being employed down to clubs down to county boards and whatever so like we're very conscious of the revenue stream that comes in and like you know you say there was a lot of changes in the GA in the last 20 years but there was changes in society as well and like sport is competitive like you know I love all sport I've no problem I managed the soccer team in my own school to win a Leinster Senior Cup in soccer and, I'm and I believe proud. there was big names on that team as well John I was going to mention that as well yeah yeah no we can come to that later but like I was very proud to do that because it was important for the young lads that were in the school at the time but there is competition there among sports and like the GA couldn't sit back and say well we're not going to do this we're not going to do it we're not going to put sponsorship on our jerseys we're not going to enter commercial deals or anything like that because the only loser there would be the membership of the GA yeah. because what would happen is the revenues available would be reduced and we wouldn't be able to circulate them among the membership. So no, I, I think the steps we've taken have been important. We're very valuable and value greatly the amateur status of the organization and we will retain that because uh, I don't think the size of the country and the revenues involved just wouldn't. I mean, I think to run Bournemouth when they were in the premiership was something like 45 million a year. The GA's revenue for all its activities in a year is 74 million. So like mm -hmm. the road of professionalism is just not going to happen for the GA. And do you know what? I think that would be great because yeah. that if professionalism came into the GA, I think it would kill the community spirit of the organization. And John, you mentioned the importance of revenue within the GA and the, 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 the limit at the top level. I mean, the last couple of years, I mean, obviously because of the of COVID and the pandemic, the revenues in for 2020 down 31.4 million, something like that. How is that going? And the same is probably going to happen for this year. How do you think that's going to impact um, at, at local, national, county, provincial level in terms of clubs? Um, it, it, look, it is going to be a challenge, but look, you've got to be positive. I think we're going to come out of this at the end of this year. 
and then we'll be back into you know generating our revenue streams and i think if we can get those revenue streams up and running i think we'll recover quickly and look you know there were certain there was a certain element of reserves within both all elements of the association from central to provincial down to club and, and that would help but it is a challenge but you know clubs have been very creative on the ground they've organized a variety of different fundraising ventures to help themselves stay afloat we got mm. money from the government, which we appreciated, and we recirculated that down among the clubs as best we could as well. We got the championship out of the government funding as well last year. So, like, you know, there's still a huge commitment and a huge loyalty to the organisation, and I think, you know, we'll bounce back out of this very quickly. So, John, that is your thoughts on the GA, and you've had your term as president, but who is John Horan? I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about John Horan. I mean, is it true, for, for instance, that uh, you're a big Leeds United fan? Um, that's one thing. Um, is it true that uh, you're a big fan of Barney Rock at one stage and that you maybe impersonated Barney Rock trying to get into clubs many, many years ago when Dublin and Barney were doing well in the, let's say, the 1983 area? It's, it's pretty obvious we've been talking to John Caffrey, but because uh, <laughs> uh, he's the one that gives that story away. No, um, look, I was born in Glasnevin, Marguerite Road. I still live in the family home. Um, I had two sisters, uh, one living in Wexford now, one living in Malahide. Uh, married my wife, Paula, about 21 years ago. She works in the Manor Hospital. Mm. And uh, we've two young lads, um, Jack and Liam. Jack studies in DCU, sports science, and Liam... Um, is as I classify my little wingman who travels the country with me on a regular basis and a mad GA man and very mm. proud. And I often tell the story that when he was uh, only six years of age and I was dropping to him to school and it was a few weeks before the presidential election and he, he was sitting in the booster seat in the back of the car and he pulled himself up and Jack had just got out of the car and he says, Dad, how are the votes going? And I yeah. says, yeah, they're going well, Liam, they're going well. And you know what? He says, you know, it's my birthday next month in March. And I says, yeah, but if you can win the presidential election, that would be the best birthday present I yeah. could get. And like for a six-year-old to be so wrapped up in it all and whatever, like, you know what I mean? And um, this morning I was on the Clareborn show and uh, he came in and he says, best to look at and just disappeared. Like, you know, so it's had a huge impact on the family. But we live in Marguerite Road. I went to school in St. Vincent's. Um, the two years in St. Columbus and Iona Road and then marched up to Vincent's to be the big boy in the primary school up there. Um, didn't enjoy my first year in primary school. I would say I had a hard time, didn't like it. The letter was used a lot. Um, I always remember one occasion when the teacher split the class in two and I always tell this story as two young lads, never let anyone define you in life. But uh, half the class was put asleep and I... I regularly taste the letter and I could never understand why because I didn't think I was troublesome or bold or in any way manner. But I remember coming home telling my mother, um, I was put asleep in school today and uh, I wasn't being taught while half the class were being taught. Now, I was being taught because I was actually lying on my arms, watching and listening to everything that was going on. Like, you know what I mean? So my mother actually went up to the school and tackled the teacher who was a bit of a legend in the place at the time and said, She'd look after my um, sleeping needs at home. And when, he, when I went to school, she wanted me taught. And like this was a woman that only had primary school education in Wexford and was sent to Dublin as a 15-year-old as an apprentice confectioner and worked for years down in Boston Bakery down on Drunkanda Road. And it was only years afterwards she told me about that. And John Costello made that comment to me recently when I said about a tear colour. And he says, you know, the tear colours generally end up in jail and in crime and whatever. But I was very lucky. I got a great teacher in second year, a chap called Mossy O'Driscoll, who was from Valencia Island. He was living on a road, on our road here in a flat. He was a young teacher. He turned it all around for me. But the reason I tell this story is that was my start in St. Vincent's. My finish in St. Vincent's was to be principal of the secondary school. So thank God I was saved from the road. I felt I was being driven down and went mm. on a different road. And I owe a lot to Massey O'Driscoll for the turn he gave me in life. But certainly the start with the letter. And uh, that was the first day introduction. This is mm. my black toffee. And uh, I have to say, it, it, it actually had a, an imprint of me then as a teacher myself. That, uh, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, so there, most, and then pre presumably as well, then as a, a vice principal and as principal, that, that, that would have had an impact. And given, if you like, the reputation of schools, Christian Brothers schools, to be honest about it, John, uh, all through those earlier years, if you like. 
Yeah, no, it, it did impact on me as a teacher. And, 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 you know, it was rather ironic, I suppose, <laughs> kind of sum it up in a way. When I um, got elected president and I was ready to go out of it, uh, one of my staff made a comment to my deputy, uh, maybe it was time for John to go. And I looked at her. <laughs> now she says, listen to the next bit. His priority here was always the student. Now, mm. I mean, if you go into education, I think your priority should be the student. I think he thought he was having a dig at me, but in actual fact, he sent me off feeling very happy about myself that, you know, he saw it that way, that students were important. And, and mm. I always felt that. And, you know, it was about creating a happy environment, not an, an environment of fear. Fear doesn't work. You know, you, you have to work in a contented environment. And, you know, lads have come back to me that have left school and said, you know, sir, I'm doing well now, but school was never for me. And I said, I understand that. School was invented back in the 19th century, right? It was invented in the manner that it exists, nearly still in the context of, you know, a large group of people, put them into a room and educate them. But that necessarily didn't fit with everybody. And I suppose the understanding of autism or ADHD and all those things back to years probably wasn't as well known as it is now. And, yeah. you know, and I often say to young lads, look, stick to your principles, carry your respect, you know, you'll flourish later in life. You may not flourish with 500 points or 600 points, but you will flourish and come true. And I'd always encourage lads to do that with yeah. themselves. And, and that happens. That happens, yeah. you know. We, we started out, John, um, and thank you very much for your time. It's fa fascinating looking at you and listening to you uh, talking about everything. Um, but we started out, and I mentioned that you were very emotional um, when you became president. Um, you strike me as a man that is very, very emotional. And <laughs> I'm curious as to how you can manage to get yourself through the quagmire of the policies and the politics that you have done through the years. Um, and particularly, I suppose, becoming president, all that went before that. Um, is, do you get disappointed with people, John? Do you get disappointed with life? Do you get disappointed? Do you have to kick yourself to get back to being the positive, emotional man that you are back up again? Ah, yeah. Look, I mean, yeah, sometimes you will feel let down and whatever. But like, you know, life is a continuum of a learning exercise and experiences, you know. And uh, I go back, actually, to a side of me probably you don't even know about, but when I was a young lad at 12 years of age, my mother said, you ain't going to walk those streets, so you have a choice. You can join the Scouts or the Red Cross or advertising for people to join them. And I joined the Red Cross. And I have to say, it had a huge influence in my formation. Um, I worked my way through that organization and ended up in the highest elected office there at 28 years of age as the National Vice Chairman of the Red wow. Cross for two years. But what it gave me in terms of life's experiences and engaging with people and... I know lately I met a girl who lived on the road next to me here, living in Donegal now, and she says, I was shocked to see you getting elected president of GA because as a young lad, you were very shy and quiet and reserved, she says, and how you've pushed yourself out into that. But, you know, you had to push yourself, and the Red Cross was a great help to me. It taught me great lessons because in the context of the Red Cross, everything you did was with people who were there voluntarily and giving up their own time. So you had to respect that. You had to motivate those people. You didn't have a salary to give them. You didn't have promotions to give them or anything like that. So you had to treat them in a very respectful manner. And I kind of learned that. And, uh, you know, if you were going on duty with them to do a football match or anything like that, there was a kind of an irony that, uh, you know, uh, you always had to be there first and you always had to leave last. Yeah. That was key. And it, it was funny in ways too. Um, I ended up working with refugees from Vietnam and I was sitting in the staff room one day and a young lad came in to fill a water bottle and I just got chatting to him and uh, with another teacher there and uh, we were talking about uh, his background. Turned out his mum and dad were both Vietnamese refugees that actually came into Ireland that I actually worked with in my time in the Red Cross and they were brought to two units in Blanchestown Hospital. And when I was younger, I always remember working with refugees coming down from Northern Ireland and the troubles in Northern Ireland, standing down in the grounds of Clonliffe College, yeah. watching people coming through the brown gates there near Jones's Road and putting them up in Clonliffe College. And I always feel in life, if you do good, it'll always come back to you. But I remember um, these people were all in sleeping. It was, it, was, it was very challenging. These were mothers with their young children sleeping in a big hall in the grounds of Clonliffe College and mattresses and wow. we would look after their feeding needs and whatever and then they were transferred to out to different areas but like 
watching the television on Black Friday with those people and the explosions going on in Northern Ireland in their home place, but they were in another part of the country. Like, you know what I mean? It was yeah. a huge challenge. But as I said, when you do go, it comes back to you. That room that all those people were lying in, I sat my matriculation exams <laughs> there. And believe it or believe it not, but I got that. I got that extra point that got me into college out of an exam sat in that hall. So it, it always left it with me. If you yeah. do good, it'll come back to you, you know. But that was, the, the Red Cross was very formative on me. It also, I went through an exercise with um, an employee and I always remember getting the advice of uh, natural justice. And it was always something I stayed with me as teaching that, you know, put yourself in the position of the person on the other side of the table and how they feel and how they think before you actually make hard decisions but look making hard decisions can I, I can do it I, 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 I'm emotional but I'm not a softy and if I have to make hard calls I will make hard calls and I've often made hard calls and I'd like to think I did them in a respectful manner and I always remember terminating a contract for one individual in the GAA and he said in fairness I respect him because he did it man to man face to face he didn't ask anyone else to carry the message and I'd yeah, like to think yeah. that's the way I'd operate you know well I've no doubt about it John I'm just looking at you as I say and listening to you there's no doubt about that think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone well think again and think Doro Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind they're easy to use with louder sound and larger text plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, Remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway, keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Um, now, as we speak remotely, and let's uh, point that out to people listening in, we are speaking remotely, um, but as we speak, um, we don't quite know exactly the path forward in terms of the GEA. We think it's going to be um, April the 5th onwards, and then that would lead to its own uh, fixture restructuring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the overall term t- thing, in terms of fixtures, John, can I just ask your, your your thoughts on, now, to me, it's very simple. To me, it's very simple, and maybe I'm sure it's there in the, in, in the pipeline, but particularly about football um can, can we not just have for want of a better word uh, going to use it again an open draw for a champions league format so in other words um with respect to all the other counties if dublin and kerry are drawn together in pot a um and maybe mayo get in there as well and then we have a lot of weaker counties in other in other pots let's say um we combine we have 32 counties so therefore we could have four groups of eight you know all this already four groups of eight and that we play each other twice. So that what we have is a championship and a league format in the one. And that we have midweek matches. We might have television matches on a Monday night. And that whole model, if you like, and then we'll end up, maybe Leitrim can win the All-Ireland. Maybe Longford can win the All-Ireland in football. But I just don't know why it couldn't be tried. Where is that concept? Is that even being thought about? As not you leave that, office, yeah. as you leave office. <laughs> no, not, not, not to that extent. I know a lot of people looked at us last year and said, why didn't you go for an open draw? There was reasons for not going for an open draw. First was to travel uh, by running the provincial championships. Travel was kept to a minimum in the provincial areas. But secondly, and a very good positive that came out of it was by running the provincial championships, look at the joy that came to Cavan and to Tipperary by winning their respective provincial championships. If we hadn't gone with that structure, that wouldn't have happened. And uh, the whole thing would have been diluted down into just one winner at the end of the year, the All-Ireland Champions. I know your point is 4-8s. 4-8s and whatever. No, uh, I'm of the view that the league structure system feeding into the championship would be the best way because then 
in four divisions, you'd get competitive matches there. The notion of playing on a Monday and midweek is is a non-starter for us as an, an organisation for the very good reason. We value and cherish our amateur status. So players playing on a Monday or a midweek night just wouldn't work in the context of their employment. And they'd be then looking for compensation for uh, being out of work or giving up time. And uh, we are very conscious we will never go down that road because once we go down that road, you're approaching semi-professionalism and then your next step is to professional. And you know that would kill the spirit and the character of the organisation, and the organisation just wouldn't be able to uh, sustain it. So, look, that's that's a non-starter. There, there are a number of proposals that we had hoped that will be dealt with at this congress, but unfortunately, mm. such as the remote nature of the congress that we're going to hold, that won't happen. But certainly later in the year, there there would be an open debate. You know, there's notions of moving teams from one province to the other, but like putting two Leinster teams into Munster won't make Munster any more competitive because the two you'd be moving would be the weaker two. Mm. The same putting the team from the weakest team in Ulster into Connacht. So I'm of the view that if we're going to change the football structure, we need to have the courage. It's a classic GAA thing. I often used it in schools when I was trying to get things through. Is let's do it on a pilot basis for a year or two <laughs> years and, and see how it goes, and uh, and and then we can move on with that. And uh, I think if we adopted the league structure, I know the provinces would be very precious, but you're not getting rid of the provinces as an entity. You'd still keep the provincial championships. You'd still keep provincial underage competitions. Your only change is that the senior football championship would be changed because the senior football championship as it exists is a bit lopsided at the moment. Like yeah. It's not just Leinster with Dublin. It's Munster as well with... Cork and Kerry dominating. I mean, except for Clare and Tipperary since 1935, it's either been a Cork or a Kerry victory in Munster. John, in terms of, um, you mentioned the professionalism and the GA itself is an organisation. It is a modern, professional, um, commercial organisation, let's be honest about it. And the word uh, Amazon and rights, TV rights, are beginning to sort of emerge now. They're beginning to come from under the stones. As, as we stand and as we speak, um, where is all that? Where is the thinking in terms of the GEA on that? Expanding perhaps uh, the media organisations that will, 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 will you know, carry the games. Is it fair to people um, who don't perhaps have the money to do it? People who don't have Sky? People who volunteer all the time to, to ask them to pay for it? Well, like I think you need to go back to maybe the first Sky deal. And my view at the time was that I was in favour of it. And the reason was, I'd be very honest and say, I don't think RTE's presentation at the time was, you know, of a standard that I felt was good. And I think it challenged RTE by bringing a competition into the market. And I think that challenge caused RTE to up their performance. And I'd say the RTE presentation of sport now is considerably better than it was when Sky arrived on the scene. That's number one. Number two is you've got to look at it in the context of any revenue streams that came in from actual Sky and putting games behind the paywall were actually just recirculated down into the association to the benefit of the members. And the number of games behind the paywall is very small in percentage terms. We have a number of National League games with air and we have a number of championship matches with Sky. But in the overall context of maybe 200 TV games televised throughout the year, it's probably about 25 games at most of mm. those 200 that are actually charged for uh, it's created a better performance I think out of RTE and I think it has also and you know there is one aspect of it that irritates me RTE keep coming back to it and yet I've listened to more RTE commentators when they've had people in the studio and they're talking to them in the context of bringing competition into their market and yet RTE just can't seem to leave it alone that there is no competition in their market for the production of GAA games and uh you know, that's the reality of where we are and uh, and that's the way it will continue. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. And is it is it just just on this? I mean, I know it's we don't know just quite yet, but is it your view that um that the the the, the, the rights will be expanded out to, to both television and radio rights and digital rights, all of the whole rights will be expanded out beyond just the ones that are in the market at the moment? Are you going uh, to well I, 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 the media rights will be negotiated in the next twelve months, so I'll actually be out of office, so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I won't be involved. But uh no, I, I don't see anyone out there needing to have concern that we will be putting more games behind the paywall. I think what we have behind the paywall has been accepted by the membership. It has been overwhelmingly adopted at Congress after debate. So in that sense, I'd say uh, those that are behind the paywall will stay the same. Um, look, uh, the name Amazon was mentioned, but like, I mean, 
that was put out by the commercial director. Um, I still think everybody will be included in the negotiations and obviously the best deal that fits the GAA as an organisation will be negotiated. John Horan, ex-president, ex-president, God, it's terrible to have to say that. You, you've had a fantastic three years, a challenging three years. What are you going to do now? I mean, will you be going up on a Thursday night to Nafina when, when it reopens for your couple of pints again with, the, with, with John Caffrey, as you mentioned, and all the lads? Um, what are you going to do with your time? I mean, it's been taken over by all this. It, it's funny, I, I, I was possibly very fortunate as a president that I live, as I said one day in an interview with Marty, um, within two kilometres of Crow Park. So yeah. I, I had the fortune of not having to overnight in Crow Park Hotel. I had the fortune, I remember one day saying goodbye to Aegon and Farrell as we left Dublin Airport and we were to see each other at 11 o'clock in Crow Park the next morning. And as I said to Paul and my wife, I'll be leaving the house at quarter to 11. Aegon will be leaving the house at nine o'clock. You know, yeah. so that was a huge advantage living so close to Crow Park at the centre of the action. It also was a huge advantage that the road network out of Dublin has improved so much that, you know, the travel around the country wasn't as hard as it would be on other presidents. Like, you know, in fairness, Christy Cooney coming out of Yall or Aegon coming out of Drumgoon, you know, the, the road network would have been more challenging. So I had that huge benefit as well. It, it, it actually gave me an advantage because, you know, in the mornings I was always there for my young lads to get them out to college and school and, you know, play a part in their lives. And there was always that lull in the evening when they would come home before I'd necessarily go off and do duties at night time to have a bit of time with them as well. So family wise, it, it wasn't a negative. If anything, it was a positive. Um, look, I haven't played much golf in the last 12 years, uh, but look, I a member of the Island Golf Club, and I'd hope to get back and get involved there playing golf. Uh, still have a young lad who's uh, only going 11 next month, so he, he'll need a bit of time, and I'd be delighted to get involved in his life and his sport because he loves it, and yeah. that, his education. So that's one of the challenges I face. And look, you know... Or have you officially stopped teaching? I would be due to return to the teaching for the next school year, but I, I won't be returning. Um, no, I'm clearing my mind about that. I have, you know, my service done and I, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's in good hands up there at the moment. I feel like my role, Mara Quinn, a good Quinn from Mead. Um, she's doing a top class job and that in no way surprises me. I always saw that potential in her and the deputy as well. So, no, the school is going well and there's no reason for me to be going back there. I think I could go back and do it in any better manner or anything like that. They're in good hands and... Uh, no, uh, you know, there's a time in life that you move on to the next phase and my good friend John Caffrey has retired as well and we have a bucket list and part of that bucket list is to play a bit of golf in Scotland and go to a Cheltenham or an Aintree and maybe go to a Champions League game over in England and I don't know if I'd be able to convince him to come to Ellen Road and see these <laughs> playing, but look, you know, we'll never know. And again, like you'd ask me, why did I become a fan of Leeds? It was I was sick as a young lad. My mother brought me a football magazine and there was a piece in it about a chap called John Giles and he was from Cabra. And I says, yeah, that's it. I'll, I'll buy into him. He's Dublin, he's Cabra, he's a local. We'll go for it. And, uh, and that's where the Leeds thing came from, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we didn't mention, as we come to the end, John, we didn't mention, we mentioned it briefly, we didn't get back to it, uh, the, the, the soccer team in Vincent's, Kenny Cunningham was on it and Kenny Cunningham is a drunk Andra man as well. So he was just down the road from me as well. So you're a fan of, you, you coached Kenny Cunningham. Kenny Cunningham, Desi Farrell were both on the team. It was, you know, and we, it started out that it, it, it actually came from a GA context because I was looking after an under-16 team in the FINA and we were stuck for numbers a bit at the time. So I was asking these lads playing soccer, would they come out and help me strengthen up the team? Because there were some great lads, lads that went on to be part of the three in a row in the FINA were on that team, but we just were struggling with numbers and quality. So Kenny and the Doyles uh, from Carlingford Road, and Mark Crowley and a few lads all opted to come out on a Saturday afternoon and play for me. So the trade-off was, look, lads, I'll enter a team. And someone suggested we enter the Division 2 Junior Cup. And I said, no, we'll have a crack at the Division 1. And in actual fact, we got to the semi-final that year and lost to John Savalli Fairmont, a renowned soccer school. And then we went on two years later and we won the Senior Cup in Talca Park in rather dramatic circumstances. We um, were 1-0 down. The other team got a penalty hit the crossbar with it and left a black spot on it. Then oh, the second wow. half, we actually got back to one all with them. The game went to extra time and their goalkeeper rushed out. Wayne Daly played for Dublin, rushed out to clear the ball up the pitch because time was running out. 
he hit his own centre half on the back of the head with the ball. It landed at Desi Farrell's feet and he tapped it into an empty net and we walked away with the cup. So your name is on it or it's not on it because we then went on to play the All-Ireland semi-final and with the last kick of the game in normal time, the Bish from Galway drew level with us and we lost it on a penalty shootout. They went on and won the final 5-1. So, you know, we had luck in Leinster and probably a lack of luck in the... um, The All-Ireland. semi-final. But like Desi and uh, Kenny were on that team. John Tracy, who went on to play for UCD on a scholarship, was also on it. And... uh, Look, it was it was a great time because we won the Dublin Senior B Gaelic and we lost the Leinster Senior B Gaelic after a replay. And I think Desi and the lads always look back on it as, uh, you know, it was just a phenomenal year in their lives. And we, we actually had so many games coming on. We rarely had to train because we literally had a match every week in school context yeah, yeah. and lads were playing at the weekend. But it's a time I look back fondly and I know when I meet any of the lads that were involved in it, they have similar good memories of it, like, you know. Sounds brilliant. Sounds brilliant. And and, and you've, you've told the story brilliantly. John, it's been great talking to you. And thank you very much for being so generous with your time, first of all. Um, uh, you've, you've been a great president. Um, if you were to sum yourself up in terms of what happened over those three years, you'll sit back presumably and say, well, look, you know what? It was challenging, as I mentioned, um, and difficult, but uh, you sailed through it. Are you happy with what happened over the three years? Yeah, I, I think, as I said one day in an interview, like when you get into a leadership position, you have to take the ball as it bounces at you. And I'd like to think I did. Um, I'd like to think it, I learned from it and I became a more experienced person, certainly in terms of dealing with media and communication and all those areas. But uh, the one thing I'd like to think is that it hasn't changed me in any way. And uh, I'll always tell you a story and maybe we finish with that, if that's what you want. Um I remember the day after I took up office and the concierge in Crow Park said to me, um, I'll get your car and I'll put the stuff in. And I was talking to people and I said, fine, very much. And uh, he, he was walking away from me and at the car and he says to me, uh, what do I call you, you know, Mr. President? And I said, well, last week you would have called me John and this day three years you'll call me John. So call me John in between because I'd like to think that I'll always stay that grounded level-headed person and not get carried away and I'd like to think I did remain that despite the public profile despite the challenges and despite that everything else that the job made me a better person but didn't change me in any way badly yeah yeah very well said and it hasn't and it hasn't don't worry about that John I can tell you and listen one final thing before I let you go I often play golf badly very badly I have to say but the way unfortunately I I play the odd time in um, Corbelis which is right beside the island. And I love the island and I love the narrow hole there on the, on the estuary. But I haven't played in it for a long, long time, John. <clears throat> there you go. I take the hint and I will follow <laughs> up on it. And I actually learned a lot of my original golf in Corbelis. And when I was a young lad before life took over with a wife and a family, many's a Christmas morning, myself and John Caffrey went out to Corbelis for a very early Christmas morning game of golf before we went home for the dinner. So no, uh, I can tell you one thing, Robbie. I've always admired you and your work in RTE, <laughs> and uh, I'd be delighted to invite you out to play golf in the island with some of my friends. Yeah, most definitely. Well, John, congratulations on your three years, and thanks very much for doing this and continued success. And enjoy retirement, if that's the right word, all told. And thanks, thanks very much for your time. No problem. It's the next phase in life. It's not retirement. <laughs> it's all ahead of you, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. No. Bye, bye, John. Thank you. Bye, 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 Robbie. Thanks, mate.